at Brandeis University. Welcome to Recall This Book. If you would rather understand the past than repeat its mistakes, join us in this discussion of books both new and old that shed unexpected light on the present and its problems. And boy, do we have problems. In the next half hour, we're going to explore uh, a couple of works, ideally three works in depth today, and point you towards further reading on the topic. So Recall This Book is hosted by Elizabeth Ferry, an anthropologist specializing in Latin American mining and global finance, and me, John Plotz, a professor of Victorian literature. And we're joined today by the neuroscientist Gina Torrigiano from Brandeis University, who works on brain plasticity and sleep these days. Um, so today's discussion is about one of the biggest elephants in the room of American politics today, which is opiate addiction. So since the point of this podcast is to try to back up and move away from a present problem and try to get at it by way of other disciplines, other unexpected avenues, um, we are going to try to do something different today to approach the problem of addiction, to understand something more about the individual experience of drug use and to think about drug habits and drug addiction as they exist kind of on an individual and a social level, but approaching them from our respective disciplines. So we're going to return, we're going to turn to biochemistry, to anthropology, but we're also going to turn to literature because my position is most importantly, most importantly, <laughs> we're going to end the, 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 the apex of all things will be literature. So my position is going to be that there's an incredible amount to learn about drug use still from Thomas De Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Um, but okay, more about De Quincey later. For now, Gina, welcome. Can I ask you? To, you're supposed to say thank you. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. John. It's well, really, that, that's, that's really fun. It's to be really here. annoying to be here. <laughs> well, we'll see how fun it is to be here. It <laughs> may it may turn out to have been fun to be here. Okay, so can I ask you to start by telling us about the book that you've chosen to sort of frame and open out our discussion today? Sure. So the book I want to talk about today is *The Biology of Desire* by Mark Lewis, and as John mentioned, I'm a neuroscientist, and one reason why I was really attracted to this book is that it's written by a neuroscientist and really tries to delve into changes in the brain that underlie addiction. But importantly, it's written by someone who is not just a scientist, but also was an addict and actually spent roughly 10 years, his entire 20s, um, in the grip of various addictions. So I think the book has this really remarkably unique perspective that manages to come at uh, the biology from the point of view of what the experience of addiction is actually like. And I think it actually gives some interesting insight into not just how you get addicted, but maybe potentially how you get unaddicted. Can I ask about the words, about other words, just to understand the categories? Um, I guess user is one word, but I think that people talk about a drug habit also. How would you position habit versus, like, is habit a better word than addiction for understanding what he's describing? I think that habit forming, so the thesis of the book really is actually that the way brains form habits is sort of integral to the way you become addicted. In fact, I could read you an interesting quote from the book that gets yeah. directly at that idea of habit. So... Um, quote, people have referred to addiction as a habit throughout recent history. That's just what it is. It's a nasty, often relentless habit, a serious habit, an expensive habit. But what makes it so enduring, so relentless, so difficult to change? 
what makes it different from what we might call more benign habits? Three things. First, it's a habit of thinking and feeling, a mental habit, not just a behavioral habit and not just a you know, uh, a biological habit. And mm-hmm. I think this is where it gets to maybe some of the texts you guys will be talking about later. So it's not um, like biting your nails. It's not like biting your nails. It's easier to stop singing, and I'm quoting again, yeah. singing in the shower than it is to stop seeing the world as violent or unfair. Second, this feeling part of addiction always includes the feeling of desire, which is, of course, the theme of the book, The Biology of Desire. And third, it's a habit that becomes compulsive, something he'll explore later on in the book. Perhaps all habits, once formed, are compulsive to some degree. The brain is certainly built to make any action repeated enough times into a compulsion. Mm -hmm. That's the key idea uh, behind the biology of the book. Um, But the emotional heart of addiction, in a word, desire, makes compulsion inevitable because unslaked desire is the springboard to repetition. And repetition is the key to compulsion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Gina, I have a lot. So you could say that addiction is a habit that crosses over some threshold to become compulsive um, and at that point becomes destructive because it actually crowds out other potential behaviors. So I have a lot of things that I do in my life, which my children mercilessly pick apart because that's very generous of them thing that they do generously. But like one of them is that I have to go out and either take a walk or a bike ride in the morning. Like I can't really think straight until I do that. So that is absolutely compulsive. I have no question in my mind. If I didn't do that, I would find myself, you know, banging my head against a wall or something. By this argument, is that basically exactly comparable to what drug use is? Or would he say that there's, there's still some categorical No, difference? I think that they're qualitatively different. They're right? qualitatively I different. I think so. I mean, I think there is a, well, maybe I should, maybe I should say quantitatively, not qualitatively. Maybe they're, they're on the same pathway, but, but an addiction is further along. Um, I think the idea that addictions get to the point where they become um, so all-encompassing that everything else becomes sort of a road back to that compulsion is what is so destructive about them. So in the brain, you could think of this as sort of pathways in the brain are like ruts on a road. You know, the more you keep doing that pathway, you, you, you go down a certain path and you get rewarded. And that strengthens that pathway. And so you do it again. There's this positive feedback cycle. Every time you go that way, that rut gets deeper. Pretty soon, you know, you're trying to stay out of the rut as you're driving along the road and you keep slipping into that rut because but, it's so deep. And so but, everything kind of feeds into But then that. that has the possibility that one could form new grooves. That's exactly the other point that this book makes a little bit obliquely. But this is the idea. How is this different from a disease? So to get back to his idea that it's not a disease. I mean, that sounds pretty bad, right? When you get to that point where um, brain pathways become reinforced over and over again, and they Mm -hmm. become sort of taking, you know, essentially they exclude other pathways through disuse just fall away. Mm-hmm. And they right? get deeper and deeper the and more they, you and do the, them, And the yeah. bad pathways get deeper and deeper. Um, and so that's why people have thought of this as a disease. You can see changes in the brain. There's lots of ways to go and measure and find these changes. And so, well, it's mm. physical, so then it must be a disease. But the question is, is it reversible, right? Could you get out of that rut? Mm-hmm. And the answer is maybe, 
because lots of addicts become unaddicted. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and there's just argue- is there empirical evidence that backs that up? Like in terms of, let's say, untreated. I'm going to put treated in quotes because I'm not really sure what treatment is. But e- people just cycle in and out of drug use in that way. There are many. Pe- I don't think people. S- no, so cycle is the wrong word. Yeah. People go into drug use and then, without further external intervention, come yes, out and in on fact. The other side. It, the book goes into that in some detail, and there are numbers in there that I can't pull out on the top of my head. But there are many people who who recover from addiction. And actually, the author is one of them. He was someone who was heavily addicted for 20 years and then stopped, went to school, got a Ph.D. And so, so how do you do that? I mean, you, you do it slowly and painfully. You have to retrain your brain, essentially, to, to get out of those addictive habits. But, but Gina, before we get away from that question of the analogy of the rut and how sort of meaningful that is as sort of a model, here's the thing as a non-brain scientist person I want to ask you, is that the thing you're describing of the comparability of all sorts of different potentially compulsive or habitual behaviors or, you know, actions that drive furrows into your brain, that all makes sense to me. But I think we non-scientists believe, and maybe naively, that opiates are in a special category because opiates are kind of working on the brain directly. In other words, my walk form, my my walk habit goes through all sorts of different pathways, and there's nothing actually in my brain that's taking a walk. But opiates are different because they're actually like little molecules that are kicking open their own pathways. Right. So a lot of drugs Mm -hmm. of abuse are taking shortcuts, Mm -hmm. but but they're really uh, taking a shortcut into exactly the same pleasure pathway that your bike riding takes Mm -hmm. or that a food addiction takes or pleasurable things that we enjoy and seek out. Mm -hmm. So it's the same set of structures in the brain that are interacting in the same way. Mm -hmm. It's just that the drugs go directly into releasing dopamine or but you enhancing say, the effects of dopamine in the but brain. But just that makes it seem like that shortcut is not that big a deal. But I thought the shortcut, I thought it seems like it is a big deal because having that shortcut makes it that much harder because you have to go, you know, like it seems harder to get at. I think it's more powerful and it is easier to become addicted to it. It's easier for it to take over um, because it is such a powerful activator of our pleasure system. But it's not... Um, I think that really is a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference. These other things are feeding into the same pathways, and they just activate them to different degrees. So maybe this is a moment to shift to yeah, yeah, definitely. Another, not not to leave this entirely, but I'm this is um, activating some interesting pathways for me because the book that <laughs> I would like to bring in that I'm bringing in is called The Pastoral Clinic. Addiction and Dispossession Along the Rio Grande by Angela Garcia. And this is an ethnographic account, an anthropological account based on fieldwork. Opiate addicts um, in the Española Valley in northern New Mexico, which is one of the sites of, you know, most intensive sites of, of um, opiate addiction and um, fatalities. Um, Angela Garcia is from this area. Um, and worked in a in a clinic and became very close with many 
uh, addicts and has written a beautifully lyrical account about the kind of um, embeddedness of addiction in um, land dispossession, in climate change, in unemployment, and um, other historical pathways um, that um, sort of provide the context for addiction. But what's really interesting is that she also talks about this idea of um, this kind of dominant idea of addiction as, as a disease. Um, and she talks about it in terms of the, she calls it the chronicity model, but I think it's the same idea, like this idea that addiction is this chronic thing. Um, she says that it was um, originally, it emerged in the 1960s, and it was intended to dispel the long-held assumption that heroin addicts are innately psycho psychopathic and irredeemable. Um, and she describes the mm. way in which this sort of idea of chronicity the sort of this is a chronic disease that you're constantly living with and maybe you can manage it, maybe you can be in recovery, but you're never fully recovered. Um, and it, without being an expert in this, this also sounds a lot to me like 12-step um, programs and the particular kind of um, stance of submission yeah. to your right. addiction, right? right? That's right. a precondition right. For, right. for recovery. Right. Um, the idea that you're helpless and mm -hmm. you have to just... Right. You know, put yourself in the hands of a higher something. Yeah, and give up the idea that you can ever get free of it, that exactly. you're sort of with it for life, right? And she has some really interesting thoughts about this. She talks about she's not necessarily saying that this is a terrible way to look at it in every way or or and she's not intervening from the perspective of neuroscience about whether it's an accurate model or not necessarily. Um, but she talks about the ways in which it kind of weirdly coincides with a with a, an idea of moral choice, right? It's this chronic thing, but you're also sort of constantly failing if you're not managing to recover. And she she talks particularly about this um, concept of relapse as having this kind of moral and even sort of religious kind of association of of lapsing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she also links it to the idea that many of the people that she knew um, had that they were sort of um, locked in a constant, depressing, unending struggle in their lives in general, and that their kind of status as chronically ill, their status of addiction as chronic illness sort of contributed or reinforced or sort of continued to um, uh, to put that forward. So they felt that their lives and struggles were sin termina, without end, that their very existence was defined precisely by this constant state of suffering. So it's just from a totally different angle, it's a it's an interesting um, idea about what what approaching it from a particular, you know, uh, when I say it's a metaphor, it doesn't mean it's not, you know, accurate in some way. but right. And it's an improvement over the right. view that it's a moral failing that got right. you addicted. Yeah, yeah. Or but that it, you're sort of a fundamentally different kind of being, like a right. psychopath or something. Right. Yeah. But it sounds like you're saying that this, that the chronicity model still has some kind of moral charge in it. Isn't it? That there's a strange, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of... I mean, um, if it were diabetes, people would say, oh, it's chronic, but they wouldn't think, you know, 
Well, I think well, about actually, that's not true. Yeah, diabetes yeah. is yeah. Good, is a bad yeah. example. Yeah, I think if it, were, if it were hepatitis, let's say, you know, yeah. or obesity is a good yeah. example. Of obesity something is, that a good is really that has a moral charge. Has a moral that has charge. a really strong yeah. moral charge. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think those things can be. Um, uh, I don't think that that attempt to to you know release addiction from that kind of moral narrative has completely been successful, and maybe even. There's ways in which by having by posing it as this kind of constant struggle, um, you know, there's a sort of pilgrimage metaphor or something that gets invoked or some kind of, you know, idea that you are sort of, you know, constantly being put to the test, not just once, but, you know, every day. So, um, and I can see how that might have a particular kind of moral charge. Actually, there's a weird way in which there is a kind of hoist by your own petard logic, right? of the um, of addiction I mean in terms of the price that you yourself are paying for something that is your own moral failing mm-hmm. um, I'm not yeah I'm not sure how that fits in because in other words there's a disease and then there's this question of the moral judgment but then there's also a paradigm that says well basically when you look at I think of like the movie Drugstore Cowboy or something where you just mm-hmm. watch the people get gradually more and more decrepit until they die you know mm-hmm. that, that that that's the that you you know, you're paying a moral price for it, even if you think of it as a disease. Mm-hmm. Right, but of course, there's a there's a a huge piece of um, of of truth to that that many people become addicted and end up in a place. I mean, a, a downward spiral that leads to complete isolation, to yeah. um, lying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To people they love, to stealing things, mm-hmm. to physical breakdown, phys- right? And yeah. the yeah. physical breakdown and all of this. So, I mean, addiction is an, a compulsion that can be incredibly, it is incredibly self destructive. So, mm-hmm. um, that's another sense in which the disease model kind of makes sense when you see, because it does, in fact, lead to, it can if mm-hmm. it goes on long enough and to real physical deterioration and mm-hmm. brain deterioration. Right? Yeah. And, um, and, but and it I, doesn't have to. Yeah. And actually we were talking about, I mean, Elizabeth, your, your framing of this was to think about the social context within which the etiology of the individual disease is understood. But of course there's another side to that too, which is the way that the individual impact of this habit, if it's misrecognized and not, treated the right way, then ends up creating all sorts of deleterious social consequences down the road, right? Sure, so it, it goes just, in both directions. Because what right? you guys are describing, that, yeah. yeah, I mean, like I guess a, what I'm thinking of is like the petty crime where you basically just start, you know, you start destroying the lives of people around you if you're right. in the grips of an addiction. Yeah. I thought I might read a little bit Yeah, I was going to s- ask if you um, would. That'd be great. So... Again, I I just am very struck by this book and its um, um, the kind of depth and layeredness of its of its discussion uh, description of addiction. Um, uh, and just to give a little bit, just to say what she what she proposes to do, I approach heroin addiction as a human and ethical phenomenon that urgently requires understanding. I also approach heroin addiction. Sorry, I also approach heroin addiction as an analytic in which culture, politics, and history coexist as a site of struggle. 
and whose examination requires close attention to the personal and collective histories that form subjects and their drug use. So that sounds, you know, super nerdy uh, when I read it out on the radio. But, um, <laughs> no, it sounds clear. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. But I. But there's a really uh, one of the beautiful things about this book is the way way she describes this in very concrete terms as well. And she she begins the book um, with a scene. Um, of her uh, her work at a at a clinic as what's called a detoxification attendant, um, which is basically someone who acts as a as a companion, a trained companion to addicts who are in the process of reducing their heroin addiction, including through you know taking other kinds of drugs that allow them to you know slowly slowly reduce their um, dependence on on heroin. Um, And she, one of the things that she found that she ended up having to do a lot was sort of distract people or or occupy people while they're waiting for their next dose and when they're, you know, very physically uncomfortable and and, um, Mm. psychically um, distressed. So she says on this afternoon as as, uh, Bernadette, one of the, one of the uh, people in the clinic grew increasingly restless. I suggested a walk to the Rio Grande, which formed the western boundary of the clinic grounds. Uh, John and Bernadette reluctantly agreed. Um, we walked slowly to the river, the sun hot on our dark heads. I watched John and Bernadette concentrate on their legs and feet as they moved. Their steps were uncertain and deliberate, like the very young or the very old. They stopped for a cigarette break, during which they considered turning back. But by that time, we were closer to the river than to the clinic. So they finally get there. Um, Takes a little while. They have to go through thorns and things. We cleared the brush, and then suddenly we're standing on the east bank of the Rio Grande. (coughs) The river was brown and shallow, its surface petaled. We stared at the muddy water and remembered summer swims. They're both from, she's from this area as well. And then Bernadette, this sucks. (laughs) Not wanting to admit defeat, I suggested walking upstream where the river widened before heading back. We walked quietly. After a few minutes, John stopped. Look, he said, pointing. Caught in a cluster of rocks lay a heroin cooker made of an old soda can along with two discarded syringes. Syringes. Este río está muerto. This river is dead, John said. And they walked back, and um, that evening, John... Um, leaves, checks himself out of treatment um, and leaves and and the author wonders whether this kind of experience of seeing this river that they imagined as vital um, but that has clearly been, you know, um, living under conditions of drought for at least a decade and is also sort of peopled as this place where addiction is going on is is prompting prompting this, uh, his actions. Yeah, well that really seems to go <laughs> to me, that speaks exactly to your point, Gina, about there being uh, quantitative but not qualitative differences between these ways that our pathways form. I mean, that there's one set of things that's going on inside your brain where the molecules are tickling you, but then there's a whole other set of things which have to do with, like, the social fabric of your life. Like, mm-hmm. is there hope? Are there meaningful forces of action? Could you go and, right. you know, form another set of habits? And what would those right. habits be? Like sitting around looking at the heroin cookers making their way down the river? Right. I mean, when obviously, you expected to see the place where right. you used to swim as a kid. Right. And she stuff, she yeah. has some vision of <laughs> wilderness therapy where, you mm-hmm. know, it's going to be like a Thoreauian moment that right. everything gets revived. But what do you do if there's no Thoreau and no river? Right. And, mm-hmm. yeah. One, This sort of comes back to um, 
this other book, The Biology of Desire. And one of the things I like about the book is he weaves in stories of five addicts. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that you know, he, he has uh, really gotten to know these people and talked about their experiences with them in incredible detail. And a lot of this comes from his own experience of having gone through this himself. Um, and it's very clear he, he's really exploring the idea of what gets you into this state where you are seeking something like drugs. You know, what is it that the drug is giving mm. you that you don't have? Mm-hmm. Um, and many, some of the people in these stories um, take drugs sort of recreationally or to kind of just give them an edge, you know, for a long time, for years and years and years, and mm-hmm. don't become addicted. Mm-hmm. And then something happens that sort of puts them over the edge mm-hmm. and they become, you know, they're their need or desire for the drug somehow becomes much, Mm -hmm. much bigger. It starts to fill a place that that, that, uh, other things aren't filling. Does that something tend to come from the outside, or is it something in the brain that happens that sort of triggers this to accelerate? Well, of course, they're not... Right. Or they're, maybe, they're, it's, maybe the answer I mean, is some combination. You know, as a neuroscientist, I mean, I think of myself as being my brain. But <laughs> right. right. But I mean, um, is it like you, you know, your marriage breaks up and therefore you, you know, begin yeah, to. I, I think his. Well, I, I guess I would back up for a second and just say it's it's clear there's a couple answers to that. One is that mm-hmm. there is a genetic predisposition. Mm. Some people mm-hmm. can become addicted more easily than other people. We don't understand the genetic basis of that, but, mm-hmm. but there's a piece of it. Right. Um, and then there are vulnerabilities that are clearly social vulnerabilities. Right. And he talks more about that in mm-hmm. this book, the things that um, the sorts of traumas that people mm-hmm. experience or just um, social isolation or, I mean, all of mm-hmm. the things that, that lead you to have... Yeah. Or the um, things that are described in Garcia's book. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. More collective kinds of experiences. Right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but I really like that, that point, Gina, about like the availability of it for you. Like you know, it, you know of the drug as something that does this particular set of things for you. But it's not as if just having taken the drug is enough to make you into a habitual user or an addict. But it, nonetheless, it's kind of like an available pathway for you. And then mm-hmm. at a moment when other pathways are shut down then this happens. So, because like mm-hmm. the book that I'm going to plug at the end, this book uh, by Sam Quinones, who's a reporter mm. who basically studied Appalachia and mm. drug supply, and he, he charts the confluence of like the rise of prescription opiates, the greater availability of heroin coming from actually mostly Mexico, but also probably uh, New Mexico as well, mm-hmm. and social like decay, like crummy jobs. So basically the crummy jobs are the thing that makes people feel cruddy and then the easy availability of mm. these two different sources of opiates is what makes that a pathway. Right. I that mean if you look at it. where it's become a real epidemic, it's yeah. places where the social fabric is breaking down and mm-hmm. where people um, don't have other avenues of fulfillment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the drug sort of s- substitutes for those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- this is kind of a question for you, Gina, in your, in, in, wearing your biology hat, but I think maybe it's for all of us, too, because, Elizabeth, you were thinking about another book, which is actually not about opiates, but is about... Um, yeah, that's what I'll about plug in Oh, yeah. you are? Okay. Yeah, yeah. But so my question is kind of like how much we're looking at a very distinctive pathway here when we think about addiction vis-a-vis opiates versus mm-hmm. how much this is, you know part of a larger continuum where we shouldn't even make sharp distinctions. It's the same pathway. So neuroscience really argues pretty strongly that 
that all of these drugs of addiction, and not just drugs, that um, addiction to porn, um, mm-hmm. addiction to exercise, <laughs> I mean, right. that, that addiction... Binge-watching, is, stranger it's, things. It's, it's coming through <laughs> the same pathway. But that's mm-hmm. true even for things like PCP or, like, mushrooms? I mean, things that are, like, more hallucinogenic drugs? Or? Well, those are not addictive in the same way. Mm-hmm. I see. It's, um, but, it's say, gambling. Gambling right? is another example of something mm-hmm. that seems very much to activate the same sorts of brain structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that all of these are tapping in one way or another. So, in essence, it's a powerful reward. You can become addicted to anything that is powerfully rewarding. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, and the know, reward the, is a is a neurochemical reward. Well, right? the it's reward a, can be a physical reward in the world. You know, our brains sort of. It, it's mm-hmm. not like um, I mean this this path these pathways are built in our evolution. You know, um, designed them. I hate to use the word design, but you know <laughs> what I mean. Um, we evolved over time to become very good. We just say Charles Darwin intended <laughs> that. <laughs> um, organisms need to find things that are rewarding, like food. Right. And so these brain structures uh, evolved to mm-hmm. make it really easy for that to happen by basically turning that into a habit. Mm-hmm. So that you're not expending extra energy all the time worrying about you know, how to go find the next meal as much of that as possible becomes kind of automated as part Habituated. of this reward-seeking mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to pedantically circle back. I take your point about the hallucinogens, but okay, so talk, so crack, same pathway. Yeah, same Cocaine, pathway. Cocaine, same pathway. Same pathway. Pot? Well, there's not very good evidence that, well, is pot addictive? Hmm. I suppose it's addictive in the sense that, um, I'm going to mull that one for a second. Okay. But so pot might be in a different mm-hmm. category. But slot machines are in that category. Slot machines definitely activate the same brain mm-hmm. structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so is this a good time to talk about Thomas De Quincey? Yeah. I mean, there's never a bad time to talk about Thomas De Quincey. <laughs> okay. So I, I think the point goes to this pathways question, and maybe we can just continue thinking about that sort of pleasure-pain ne- nexus. So I do think it's, um, I, you know, it's significant at the heart of this book that Thomas De Quincey wrote in the 1810s, just he wrote basically exactly 200 years ago and then published in 1821 or 1822. It, the two central sections are called The Pleasures of Opium and The Pains of Opium. And the first line of the heart of the book is opium, dread agent of unimaginable pleasure and pain. So that it he really puts together mm. the way that the highs are themselves the problem. Like it, it he he mm-hmm. focuses on opium w- where its vice is a result of its virtue, so to speak. So I just wanted to read a couple of passages that sort of speak both to how attuned he is to what is specifically pleasurable about opium, and then also his awareness that the very same thing is also what's kind of what brought him up is also bringing him down. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. So he makes this distinction. He says, whereas wine disorders the mental faculties, opium, on the contrary, if taken in a proper manner, introduces amongst them the most exquisite order, legislation, and harmony. Wine robs a man of his self-possession. Opium greatly invigorates it. 
Opium communicates serenity and equipoise to all the faculties, active or passive, and with respect to the temper and moral feelings in general, it gives simply that sort of vital warmth which is approved by the judgment and which would probably always accompany a bodily constitution of primeval or antediluvian health. I'm just imagining that as like a warning on the, on the bottle. <laughs> like that's like he should have written for Big Pharma. So there's, so there's one side. And there's a lot to say about that passage. But then just um, um, to come back, uh, he also talks about the nightmare of it. And basically, he doesn't just say it was a nightmare to be addicted. He said also the pleasures went away. And instead, I just basically was left always wanting to feed the habit. I couldn't feed the habit. Pains of opium. I triumphed. But think not, reader, that therefore my sufferings were ended, nor think of me as one sitting in a dejected state. Think of me as one, even when four months had passed, still agitated, writhing, throbbing, palpitating, shattered, and much perhaps in the situation of him who has been racked as I collect the torments of that state. So racked as in being put on the rack. So... That's an incredibly euphoric account of the upbeat and an incredibly grim account of the downbeat. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Help me. And yet there's a lot in common, right? The the upbeat and the downbeat have a lot in common. Um, Maybe not only in that quotation, but one of the things that really comes out in the De Quincey is that is that the yeah the euphoria has this kind of you know um, intensity and exquisiteness that the you know that the hell also has yeah he has this wonderful description where he says you know uh, people talk about sympathizing with the poor but I could only ever sympathize with the poor in their pleasures and the only way I could do that was to take opium and then I would be with he feels this sense of common human solidarity. Basically, right. right. All the obstacles to ordinary social intercourse, by which I take it he just means kind of all the ordinary awkwardness and neurosis and anxiety that we have in everyday life kind of Mm -hmm. vanishes. When he's in the opium state, everything seems part of this one big ocean. Well, and also the the formalities and hierarchies of of English class life, right? Yeah, like everything, right. So I think right. like you can see that feel this commonality yeah. with, you know, somebody who's not of the same class. But as the biologist, same. I'm compelled to bring up the biological side of the torment and the hell. Yeah, yeah, let's which talk is, about that. Which is the fact that um, you become tolerant to many drugs. And mm-hmm. so what you would need to actually get high, mm-hmm. that dose increases and increases right. eventually you can get to the point where you can be taking a very very high dose just to feel normal so right. you're not feeling the euphoria anymore right. and in fact the pleasure of the drug drops away and so that's part of where the desire in the biology of desire idea comes from it's not really pleasure it's desire like what's driving you is wanting the drug but the drug when you get it gives you no pleasure anymore. It, it only makes you feel... It makes you... It, it's the absence of feeling yeah. horrible, but right. you, you aren't experiencing the same euphoria that you did at the beginning right. of yeah. and actually, to take that drug. Mm-hmm. De Quincey not only goes into the experience of that, the way in which essentially he's living b- below the x-axis rather than above mm-hmm. the x-axis, you might say, he also goes into the number of drops per day that he right. needs to yeah. get this feeling, right. which is gradually increasing right. yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. 
But that seems to be, I mean, in the beginning, we were talking about sort of how do we distinguish this from John taking a walk and biking in the morning. Yeah. And, and um, that's by far the worst habit I have. Right. Taking a walk in the morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally evil. Yes. yes. Also, I remember going to the museum, right? That was from an earlier episode. <laughs> Quite a guy. Um, um, and they kill puppies. Yeah. <laughs> but the, um, I mean, the the compulsion to bike and and take a walk. You know, you don't have to keep biking and keep keep biking in order just to feel normal, right? I mean, you. It's still well, by defined Gina's logic, by its, you do. No, but I'm logic. saying that's what distinguishes it, right? If we're if we're saying that there's, oh, well, I thought you were saying that was true of all habits that they all need gradually that they're all habituation. You get habitu. Oh, that's interesting. You get habituated to a habit. I think there is an element of habituation to lots of things we do in terms of the euphoria that goes with it. But they don't all build up a tolerance that you keep having to yeah, take phys- until you die, right? I think that's a, it's a good point, and this does sort of distinguish a drug uh, you ingest directly, yeah. um, that the physical tolerance, and that's, that's a piece of it, for instance, that really does need medical treatment. When you have mm-hmm. physical tolerance to a drug, you can't just stop taking it. So that aspect of addiction, but I think that's very, um, you can pull that apart from right. the... Um, you know, the physical dependence can be pulled apart from the sort of cognitive, psychological, um, and brain addiction. Right. That, the accessing these right. pathways that right. give you this reward can be common to all of these kinds of things, but right. only right. some of them have these particular right. kinds of uh, so, yeah. so sequelae. It's, ab- you know, it's absolutely true. Like, you can't just go cold turkey for many drugs without it being incredibly physically dangerous, including alcohol. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, I think that gives me valuable ammunition in my other fight with my children, which is whether I'm an addict to caffeine or not, because <laughs> I haven't become habituated to it, and then I'm still taking the same amount of caffeine I've always ever taken. Right. So I feel like Even that, though if you didn't take it, you would probably get a blinding headache. No, no, or we're, at least we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on the <laughs> no. fact that the amount the of caffeine is, I'm taking is still the same. That's the thing. Yes. You might yeah. have some physical dependence on the caffeine, but is it really doing you any harm? I don't yeah. think so. Right. And you're okay. probably still drink, as you say, you're drinking the same amount, more or less, that you were. You're not drinking yeah. 35 cups a day, probably. Right. I mean, look, there are lots of... <laughs> no comment. There done, are done. lots <laughs> of things that are pleasurable that we can do in moderation over and over and over again. And mm. I think, you know, this question of what tips it over into this compulsion is really um, is really interesting. Even with mm-hmm. highly addictive drugs, that is, drugs where you build up tolerance to them. Mm-hmm. And I think the more tolerance, the easier it is to get addicted because you keep upping the dose. Yeah. Um, I mean, not just even, interesting, but critical to understanding, critical right? critical for understanding it, yeah. exactly. Like, what is it really that, that creates that switch? Mm-hmm. And... I think this book sort of explores it, but it doesn't really. And I think your, it sounds like your book is really exploring very much the same thing. But from a completely that, different right. angle. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think this might be the moment in our show where we dance. Uh, okay, now that we've danced. Uh, <laughs> where we talk about um, books that we would recommend uh, to our listeners. And so, Gina, do you have a plug for us? Yeah. I mean, just in case you haven't heard enough neuroscience today. <laughs> more, um, always more. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like this book by uh, David Linden. He's a um, really, you know, world-class neuroscientist um, and also just a fabulous writer. He's, run, he's written a bunch of 
um, popular books on various aspects of neuroscience. He wrote a book called The Compass of Pleasure. And that really gets into this idea that many, many different um, kinds of things activate these same pleasure pathways in the brain, whether it's gambling or sex. or um, And I think he, dis- he discusses the neuroscience in a way that is very accurate, but his writing is extremely funny and entertaining. And so um, you can absorb a lot hmm. without it being too overwhelming. Cool. So wait, say the name of the book again. The Compass of Pleasure. The Compass of Pleasure. Okay. And, and David we'll, Linden. Is awesome. We'll have that on our website. Absolutely. For you listeners, um, dear listeners. So I'm also going to bring in. Uh, I'm going to bring in another anthropology book, and the title is uh, "When I Wear My Alligator Boots." And this is an ethnography of sort of low-level people in the narco trade in northern Mexico, um, and it's it's interesting because it it has a lot of similarities to the kinds of things we've been discussing, um, but it's particularly focused on on meth and addicts of uh, people who are involved in the meth meth economy, but also um, addicts. And um, like the um, pastoral clinic, uh, it talks about the ways in which addiction is kind of embedded within uh, both the lack of jobs, but in the case of meth, also particular kinds of jobs um, and um, certain kinds of repetitive work that take that have long hours, um, where maybe you have to work many hours in order to uh, make a living, and you're doing the same thing over and over again, like working on a factory line. So uh, yeah, the title is uh, "When I Wear My Alligator Boots." And it's by Shaley Mullman, and uh, there'll be a link on our website. Awesome. And uh, the book I'm going to plug just very briefly, I already described it, uh, Sam Quinone's Dreamland. And it's about southern Ohio mainly, but just sort of thinking about Appalachia. And it's really a social fabric book. So it is – I almost would – um, compare it to George Packer's book, uh, The Unwinding, just talking about what is happening in um, small town America, but generally all over as well, where jobs go away and people look for other pathways uh, to satisfy their craving for meaningful contact with the world, for stimulation, and thinking about how the unfortunate uptick of um, the easy availability of opiates in either legal or illegal form that coincides with that uh, social decay. So it's, you know, it's kind of Weberian. It's an analysis of it, it, it's looking at the level of the society, even as it's chronicling individual misery. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a laugh a minute. I love it. Uh, it's a great book, though. And again, you'll find a link for that on our website. Okay, so um, we have come to the end of another show. And remember, we always want to hear uh, from you directly. And I imagine a lot of folks will want to uh, sort of reach out with their thoughts, uh, their criticism, comments, or suggestions. Um, after this show, it's obviously a topic that all of us have on our minds. Um, so you can email us directly or contact us via Twitter or on our Facebook page and website, where you will also find links to the text discussed today and suggestions for further reading and listening. And finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get our podcast, and to share the episode with friends via social media or however else you do that. For a podcast with no commercial affiliations and no budget for publicity, or really for anything except the occasional <laughs> cup of coffee, your kind words are the single best way and maybe the only way that we can get the word out. 
I also want to give a special thanks to Eric Chaslow, who uh, composed the music for this and every episode of our podcast. And so uh, from Recall This Books, this is John Plotz, along with Elizabeth Ferry and Gina Turrigiano saying uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>